0: Have a Bible, I invite you to take it to Genesis take it and turn to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. And we will cover this whole chapter this morning. Uh, there's no denying that we live in a world that's filled with pain. Um, there are natural disasters, there are diseases, there are tragedies that come into our lives and shake us, but sometimes the most painful, the most devastating, the most scarring things that come to us come at the hands of our fellow human beings. It's amazing how much we can hurt each other. There are ways that other people can harm us and hurt us and defile us that is it's very hard, it's difficult to talk about. We watch the news, we read um, reports and we're astonished at how ruthless people can be towards others, how much they can uh, put their own self-interest in mind and scar others for life. And as we look at that, part of my question as a follower of Christ is how, how do I respond to that? How do I respond to the evil that people inflict on me? How do I respond to the evil that people inflict on others that I know and love and others that I, that I may never meet but still are part of the human race how do we deal with specific circumstances of violence, of, of defilement, and the larger issues of evil in this world? What is the Christian supposed to do with injustice in the world? We may think that Scripture doesn't have anything to say about that, but it certainly speaks to all of these issues. It reveals our, our sinful actions, our sinful reactions, and it shows us that in the actions of other people... And it points us to Jesus as the perfect example. I think sometimes we don't want to talk about the evil in the world. We recognize that it's there, but we don't really want to talk about it. And chapters like Genesis 34 sort of force us to. Um, we would like to deny that it's there, but it's right smack dab here in the middle of God's word. And it addresses these things because we have to think about this stuff. I studied this passage and and found it um, Sadly ironic to watch some of the things on the news, hearing about this young woman in Stanford who was treated much like Dinah and so many of the um, reactions to that. I read about the young student um, who defiled her, how he reacted, what his father had to say, what the justice system decided, what this woman had to say. I don't know if you followed any of that, but it was pretty ruthless. And I was struck at how faithful it is of God to give us something like Genesis 34 to teach us. How do we address evil? How do we address injustice and violence in the world? How do we process through this? How do we respond rightly? Not simply to that issue, but all the evil and all the injustice that our world is wrestling with right now. Issues of violence, um, issues of, of murder, issues of, of justice within police forces and and racial profiling and Black Lives Matter. And all of these things are about justice and they're about um, evil. And what do we do when people do evil things to us? How do we process through that? So that's what I want to think about this morning. (laughs) I'm not going to solve that problem by any stretch of the imagination. But the question I want to ask is, how do we respond to injustice and evil in a way that honors God? That's our big question. How do we respond to injustice and evil in a way that honors God? Put it another way, if we are God's people, And as Philippians 2.15 says, if we're supposed to be shining as lights in in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, how do we reflect God's light and truth in the face of evil done to us, done to those that we love, and done to human beings in general? And I think Genesis 34 helps us to think through that most poignantly through poor responses to evil. And injustice. So let's read Genesis 34. You'll remember that Jacob and his family have entered into and settled in Shechem in the promised land. And Jacob has purchased some land in that city and he has built an altar. And then we pick it up in Genesis 34 beginning in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great, as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, And we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them. And they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flock and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? There you go. It's good to open your Bible and see that it's actually there, right? This is God's word to us. And as much as we'd like to pull chapter 34 out and just move on to chapter 35, I think it speaks volumes to us and helps us to think about how we respond to injustice and evil in a way that honors God. So notice first, just in verses 1 through 4, as we think about how do we respond, and we're going to slowly push towards that, but notice first the reality of evil. The reality of evil. Dinah is reintroduced into the story in verse 1. She's listed as a daughter of, of Leah earlier in the book of Genesis. And here we're reminded that she's the daughter of Jacob by Leah. And we also know that she is the sister of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. So she's got some big brothers. She's here She's with her family in Shechem in the land of Canaan, surrounded by Canaanites. And we're told that she goes out to see the women of the land. I don't know how hard we push on that phrase. I don't know what her motives are in going. I don't know um, what exactly going out to see the women of the land entails. But what we do know is that in the process of, of going out, it's very clear that she is seized forcefully by Shechem, who is a Canaanite who lays with her and humiliates her and defiles her. The statement is very brief, but it's, it's clear what has happened. It's clear the violence with which it happened. And the violence and the injustice and the sin of Shechem towards Dinah is what sets the stage for everything else that's going to happen in these remaining verses. And they show us the reality of evil. Now I say we need to think about the reality of evil in this world. And you might say that's a no-brainer. I know that there's evil in this world. You don't need me to tell you that there are people who fill our world who are ready to sin against us, to defile us, to get what they want at our expense. But then again, maybe we do need to hear that. Maybe we need to be reminded that there are evil people in this world that want to do us harm, Christian or not. We live in a fallen world filled with fallen people, who have fallen hearts, and our lives can be hurt and harmed by them. There are Shechem's all around this world. People who are filled with sinful desires and seem to think that they have the right to act on those desires at the expense of others. Shechem is a prince in the land. He's one of the highest in the land. And his status seems to have gone to his head. He, he, defi- he defiles Dinah, right? But then he thinks that this should sort of just be overlooked. That he should be allowed to marry this woman. We see later that he presumes that he can he can offer enough money or goods to, to purchase Dinah. He's shameless. The thought that I'm entitled to whatever I want, that people exist for my personal happiness, and that if it feels good, I should do it, this thought pervades our world, doesn't it? And not just our world, but it's something that we have bought into very often. That I can do whatever I want. People exist for my personal happiness, and if it feels good, I should do it. And that thought poses a threat, and it works itself out in the lives of all of those around us. We need to be aware of evil in this world. We need to be aware of Shechem's in this world. We need to remember that human beings are not tools for our desires. They are people that are created in the image of God. Jacob seems to have lost sight of the danger that surrounds him. He's put his family in this situation. Why is Dinah, who is probably a, a teenager, maybe younger, why why is she allowed to unconsciously interact with the Canaanites all around her? Jacob and Leah have failed. Jacob and Leah have not help their daughter to think through what she is doing. They they have they have not protected her. Well, they have not prepared her well. And part of the problem is that they're in Shechem. Where is where did God tell Jacob to go back to? He told him to go back to Bethel, which is about a day's journey away from Shechem. He doesn't even he's not where he's supposed to be. I I said um that that Lastly, we talked a little bit about this, that he's he's in the land. He's he's purchased land, so this shows that he's viewing it as his permanent residence. But I, as I think about this more, it may indicate a lack of faith. God had commanded him to return to Bethel, not to Shechem, and he doesn't go as far as God told him to do. And And also, God says he's going to give Jacob the land, but what does Jacob do? He buys land. I think that maybe he's still scheming. But having stopped here, he's exposed his family to the evils of this land. Of course, we can't seclude ourselves from the world, can we? We can't completely insulate ourselves from the world and from the evil that surrounds us. But there is a lesson here that we need to protect the innocent. We need to protect children. We also need to prepare them for the suffering and the sinfulness that is in this world. But none of that, none of the protection or the preparation is going to happen if we deny that the fact that there's evil in this world, if we in some sort of Pollyanna fashion seem to think that everything is going to be okay and not take the reality of evil in this world seriously. So a a few thoughts of application. Parents, are we honest about the reality of evil in this world? Are we preparing our children to understand the sinfulness of this world? Do they understand people like Shechem? Do they understand the evil that exists in this world? I'm not trying to scare them, but to prepare them. Let's be honest about the sin that is in this place. And God, give us wisdom to know how to do this. Children, do you listen to your parents? Do you receive their instruction as words of life and protection and love? And for all of us, are we honest about the evil in this world? Or are we unconsciously stepping into the world? Oblivious to the way that sin can harm us. Our conscience is numb to how evil this world can be. The reality of evil is is very clear in this passage. A final word about Dinah before we move on. Just to be clear. Dinah is sinned against. Dinah is scarred in a way that will never fade completely this side of eternity. And she is surely confused. She's scared. And she needs people to come alongside her and to help her. And I just reminded, thinking about this, that, that as God's people, as the church, we need to be a place where people like Dinah, who are scarred by sin, who are confused about what others have done to them, who are scared, the church should be a place where people can come and find love and compassion and someone who will listen to them And help them. How tragic it is that the church, in fact, isn't that place so often. That the church has become a place of pain rather than healing, a place that, in some ways, has inflicted wounds like what Dinah gets. We act often like the men in this chapter who abuse their power and take advantage of this whole situation for their own personal gain. That's what we want to look at next. So the reality of evil, let's think about the responses that are modeled. There's four responses from, from five different people, and every response is wrong. They're responding to the evil of, of Dinah being defiled, and they all respond poorly. The first and probably the most important and the most troubling response comes from Jacob. So if we're thinking about the responses model, we're going to think about four. The first is Jacob, and Jacob is passive, and he's pandering. He gives in. Jacob is passive and pandering. So you notice in in the passage that word gets to Jacob about what has happened. He hears, and what's he do? He is silent. He does nothing. He doesn't tell his sons, probably because he knows how they're going to respond, but in fact, he, he doesn't say anything. This whole chapter, Jacob doesn't speak until chapter 30. And what does he talk about? He talks about how what Simeon and Levi have done are going to cause issues for him and for his household. Verse 13, in fact, is clear that when Hamor and Shechem come and they start talking to Jacob about his daughter, who speaks? The sons of Jacob. The sons take up the cause of Dinah. Jacob has nothing to say. We could say he's he's silent, he's, he's selfish, he's the head of his family, he's supposed to be leading and he fails. We could say that he's shocked, maybe he doesn't know what to do, but his delay, his lack of decisive action results in all of the havoc that's going to come in this passage. You've got young men. Who are driven by their passions and by their anger and by how indignant they are. And Jacob should stand forth as the man with some wisdom and some life experience and lead through this in a way that would help them. But he fails completely. In fact, all of his interactions contribute to everything that's going to come later on in Genesis. Because what's the next story? The next story is the story of Joseph. The question that comes at the end of the passage is so strong. Simeon and Levi say, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? I think part of that is them saying, Dad, this is, this is our sister. This is your daughter. Why aren't you doing anything? And you can almost hear in that question saying, is it because she's not your favorite? If she was Rachel's daughter, would you do something about it then? And, and all of these seeds that are going to come out in their anger towards Joseph, probably part of it is again here where Jacob fails to help their sister. Of all the things that that Jacob has done, this is confusing. Maybe one of the most confusing. He neglects his daughter. He fails to protect her. I think Jacob warns us that silence is not an option in the face of sin. Silence isn't an option. Something has to be done. Something must be done. Something must be said. Some action must be taken. But if we're like Jacob and all we're worried about is our own safety and we're worried about our own reputation and our own comfort, then we will say nothing. If our concern is to be politically correct, if we don't want to rock the boat with anyone, we will never address evil in the way that we should. And we have to be decisive because there's people like Hamor. And Hamor is shrewd and self-seeking. Jacob is passive and pandering. Hamor is shrewd and self-seeking. Hamor is the first person to bring deception into the situation, but he's not the last. He sees this not simply as an opportunity to deal with the problem at hand, with what his son has done, and to satisfy his son, but it's also a chance to make gains for himself and for his people. He's going to use the sin against Dinah for his own personal gain. The marriage of Shechem to Dinah could open the door for the Canaanites to to marry Israel's children and to trade with them. And so he says, you know, offers up this great deal to Jacob and to his sons. And then when he goes back to his own people, he says this marriage offers them the chance to take advantage of the Israelites. He sees not some chance for mutual blessing between these tribes. Rather, this is personal gain. He sees Israel as peaceful, as naive and as exploitable, and he wants to exploit them. There's a threat to the covenant here. And the threat is that in intermarrying with the Canaanites, the Israelites lose not just their livestock or their daughters, but they lose their entire identity as the distinct people of God. Think about that lesson for the Israelites east of the Jordan who are reading this for the first time, ready to enter into the promised land led by Joshua. That lesson that they need to know, listen, we're going to the land of Canaan and we can't intermingle and lose our identity. Hear that echoed in the passage that Joel read this morning, to be distinct, God's distinct people. But not only that, Hamor seems to say that this alliance is going to open up blessing for the people of Israel. If you will join us, then we can share livestock, and we can trade, and things will be great for us. But but the the fact is that that God is the one who is supposed to bless them with the land. God is the one who is going to to give this to them. They don't need Hamor. So the question is, will Jacob and his sons... Ignore the injustice that was committed against Dinah and will they grasp for the land through this alliance with Hamor? They're just going to forget what happened to Dinah and get what they want out of it, just like Hamor is trying to do. And this unwanted union between Shechem and Dinah it opens the door for all these possible further issues. Hamor is shrewd. He is self-seeking. Then think about Shechem. Shechem is shameless. I think that's the best way to describe him. He has no... Shame. He comes with his father. If you can say one positive thing about Hamor and Shechem, it's they deal with the situation. Jacob doesn't even say anything. These guys, at least, are up front and try to deal with the problem. But Shechem comes and he talks about his great affection for Dinah. How he loves her. I'll pay anything for her. He hopes that's a good argument. I'll give you any, you know, name your bride price. But I think the brothers hear that and they it incites them to anger because they conclude what he's treating our sister like a prostitute. She can be bought. He has no remorse. He doesn't seek any forgiveness, seems to think that his desire for Dinah, his willingness to to pay a high bride price should be enough to wash his sins under the bridge. He doesn't have any issue with what's going on. Now, my perspective is this love or lust. Shechem shouldn't be within 100 yards of Dinah. Right. I mean, in part because he's a Canaanite, but in large part because of what he has done, there is no excuse for his behavior in the way that he has sinned against Dinah. It's wrong. And he needs to be held accountable for it not given what he wants. He, he shouldn't be able to buy his way out of this situation. His status as a prince in the land should have nothing to do with whether or not he is held accountable. Think about that. Is that true in our day? How sad, even in our day, that money and status can derail justice. Who you are, who you know, what you have, the color of your skin, can have an effect On justice. But sin is serious. And sin has to be dealt with justly. And Shechem is shameless. And he needs to be full of shame at what he's done. And he needs to be repentant. The eyes of justice are to be blind to status and wealth and any other external factor. So Jacob is passive. He's pandering. Hamor. Hamor is shrewd. He's self-seeking. Shechem is totally shameless. And then we meet Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are deceptive and they are violent. Simeon and Levi are deceptive and they are violent. Again, Jacob should be leading here. But his sons step in. His young, impulsive, angry sons step in. And in their anger, they deceive Hamor and Shechem. It says it very clearly. They spoke deceitfully. Well, they didn't learn how to deal with the situation from their father, but they learned how to lie. They got this down. I know how to deceive people. The text tells us that they spoke deceitfully and their plan works. The people of Shechem and Hamor hear this whole scheme. If we will circumcise ourselves, then we will be joined together and we can take advantage of these guys. And it says on the third day there in verse 25, after they had been circumcised, when they are sore, that Simeon and Levi, probably others, show up and kill them all. Just imagine Dinah. Dinah has been given to Shechem at this point from what we can tell in the text. And so Dinah has been with Shechem for three days. And then her brothers come in and kill Shechem and everyone else in that town. I mean, as if she hadn't gone through enough already, you know, heart goes out to Dinah. We look at these brothers and I think part of us can say that we respect their zeal. I respect their desire for justice. The problem is they just go too far. That's not the only problem. They have taken justice into their own hands. And in fact, they misuse the whole covenant. What's the covenant? It, it, It seems as if they understood in part that the people of the land need to be like them. They need to be followers of God. They need to take on the sign and the seal of the covenant, which God had given to Abraham, which is circumcision. But what do they do with that? Do they want the people of Shechem to become a part of them and to worship their God? No, it's a military strategy. Why don't you guys circumcise yourselves, and then when you're weak, we'll come and kill you. Instead, the sign of, of being a, a sign of blessing it, it to bring life, it accomplishes death and brings a curse on these people. This is twisted. What a mess. I mean, let's call it like it is. All of these guys abuse their power and totally drop the ball in this situation. None of them does what's right. Every one of them acts without reference to God. All they're thinking about is their own motives and their own selfish hearts. What are the results? So we thought about um, the reality of evil. We thought about the responses of these guys. Let's think about the results. The results here are that this entire city is wiped out. And then the sons of Jacob come, plunder the city, take all the women, take all the herds, take all the wealth. Amazingly, there's some evidence of God's grace here, isn't there? God brings protection. God protects them. He protects the covenant. As, as, as wrong as Simeon and Levi's actions are, in some ways God uses that to protect them as the distinct people of God and to protect this covenant. He protects all their possessions. These guys wanted to exploit them and steal from them. And God protects them. In fact, he blesses them even more. They get protection and they get blessing. The irony of the text is 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 sad. It's startling. You see Hamor, he says, we can take everything from them. And what happens to Hamor? Everything is taken from him. Israel plunders them. I, I don't know what to say totally about this, except I do not understand the ways of of God. It's at least a negative example of what we will see and what we're pushing towards at the end with Joseph is that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God takes terrible, horrific situations and often turns them for the good of his people, even when we are the ones enacting those situations. Those are the results. And then I just want to end with the question. The, the question, the, the text closes with this scene between Jacob and these two sons, Simeon and Levi, where Jacob is concerned about being destroyed by the Canaanites. And Simeon and Levi are concerned for the honor of their sister. Look at it again. Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, this is verse 30, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Which I would say that response stinks. Uh, what did the son say? Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? That's a good question, isn't it? Should this man be allowed to defile our sister and not face any consequences for that? Doesn't it get back to the heart of what we're trying to think about? How do we respond to evil? How how do we respond when the world sins against us and against those that we love? What do we do? We can't be passive and not do anything. We can't just scheme and be self-seeking. We can't be shameless and figure that we'll just let everyone off the hook. But we also can't be violent and deceptive. So what do we do? I think looking at all of Scripture and looking at this specific circumstance, let me just give you five things that we do. I don't think this is exhaustive, but maybe it'll help us begin the process. How do we respond to the evil done against us, against those that we love, and against the human race in general? The first one is this we walk in holiness. We walk in holiness. I think part of the reason that Jacob can't respond rightly is because he's living so wrongly. He can't respond rightly and with integrity because he's not a man of integrity yet. He doesn't know how to. Our moral compass is totally off if we are not walking in holiness. Jacob should see this for the evil that he is, but he doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. He doesn't respond to it with the heart of God. And if we're not walking in holiness, if we are being so inundated and influenced by the world around us and by our own sinful hearts, rather than by God's word and his truth, then we will not know how to rightly respond. If we're not walking in holiness, if we're laughing at the things that the world laughs at, if we're accepting all the things the world accepts, then when something heinous and disgusting looks us in the face, we won't know what to do with it. Our integrity will be gone too. How's Jacob supposed to respond to a bunch of deceptive people? He's been deceptive his whole life. He doesn't know how to respond to people because that's who he is. But if we would walk in holiness, if we would walk in the light, then, then we will see evil for what it is, and we will have integrity to speak into it the way that we should. How do we respond? Well, it begins that we walk in holiness. Second, we protect the innocent and the hurting. We protect the innocent and the hurting. I think part of the narrative is pushing towards something else, but at the same time, the fact that Dinah is mentioned in verses 1 through 4 and then forgotten, as it were, just says to me that these guys had no interest in what was going on in her life. And God's people are to love all people, especially Those who are innocent, those who are hurting, those who are victims. Victims of violence, whether it's verbal or sexual or physical, our hearts should be to protect and to help. The helpless, the orphan, the widow, the unborn. This is who the Christian cares about because they are helpless and they are innocent. God talks all throughout Scripture about the stranger and the immigrant because they are vulnerable and because God's people are to care for The vulnerable, the weak, those that are discriminated against. The Christian is to protect the innocent, the hurting, the vulnerable, and the victim. And we see none of that in this passage. They do nothing to help Dinah. How do we respond to evil? Our hearts first go to those that have been hurt, to those that have been sinned against. And we want to bind up their wounds and show them the love of Christ. We walk in holiness. We protect the innocent and the hurting. Third, we seek justice. We seek justice. We protect the innocent, not the evil. We don't. The church should never be a place that harbors evil, or that tries to to help those that have hurt others. Completely, there's a time for that, but. If justice needs to happen, then as we read in Romans 13, that if there are laws, as we look at God's law in general, that sin needs to be dealt with, we pursue that. We don't hide people from the justice that needs to come to them. I am learning in this area, but I think as the church, we need to recognize the need for righteousness in our government and in our law enforcement and these things need to be dealt with we need to seek justice for people that have been sinned against and that have been hurt and as we seek justice what we're not doing fourthly is we leave vengeance to god we don't take vengeance ourselves we leave vengeance to god which is not what simeon and levi do is it they take it into their own hands Listen to two key passages. So so let me, we walk in holiness, we protect the innocent and the hurting, we seek justice, we leave vengeance to God. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, 34 through 36 says this, is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And Paul picks up on it in Romans 12. Romans 12:17, 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a balance here. We seek justice in the right ways, in the ways that God has intended. We don't seek vengeance ourselves. We... We don't kill abortion doctors. We don't burn down buildings. This is not how we respond to these sort of situations. But we don't fight with the evil people of this world. We don't fight with their weapons. That's not how we work. Do we want justice? Yes. I want justice. And guys like Shechem deserve the vengeance of God. And so do I so do you. We've all sinned against others every single day. We all deserve vengeance. And God will enact vengeance on all people. All sin will be paid for. The beauty of the gospel is that either Christ pays for it or you do. Every sin on the last day that has not been covered by Christ will be paid for. And so in light of that, the fifth thing that we do is we offer hope. We offer hope, and there's none of that in this chapter, but that's what we're supposed to do. We offer hope. The ugliness of what Simeon and Levi do is found in part because they use the sign of God's covenant as a means of deception. But in the new covenant, we are to offer hope and forgiveness and restoration to everyone. We hold out the gospel And the gospel is what shapes all of this. This is what shapes how we respond to evil because God's response to evil is the gospel. What does God do to Shechems like you and me? He sends Jesus. Jesus, who lives a perfect life of holiness in the midst of a sinful world. And out of compassion and love for those that are hurt and scarred by sin, he is sent by the Father. And he comes, and what does he come to do? He comes to bring justice. He comes, but He does it in a unique way. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, becomes sin on our behalf. And through His death on the cross, He takes all the vengeance, all of the wrath of God that is due to our sin upon Himself. So not only does He accomplish justice, but He gives us grace. God doesn't neglect justice. Evil has been done by us, and it has to be paid for. But Jesus has paid for it on our behalf. And now he offers forgiveness to everyone who will repent and believe. The reason that we can offer a message of hope and forgiveness, the reason that we can be forgiven, and the reason that we can forgive is because of the mercy of God in Christ. We trust that sin will be paid for. Justice will come. Either through faith, Jesus suffers on our behalf, or we will suffer for all eternity. We can hold out the offer of the gospel and the offer of hope, even to those that have sinned grievously against us and against those we love. This is a tragic chapter for everyone. But the beauty is is that it points us, to the the wonder of what God has done for us in the cross, and that in the face of evil, there can be justice, there can be vengeance, sin can be dealt with fully and finally and rightly, and people can pay for the evil that they have done. And yet, also, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness that we find in Christ. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there is evil, where people are seeking to do evil to us, and we have to know, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? We can't be like Jacob. We can't be silent and passive. We can't be self-seeking like he is. We can't be self-seeking like Hamor and just try to get, take advantage of everyone. We can't be like Shechem and just sort of try to wash sin under the bridge. And we can't be like Simeon and Levi and just sort of act out in vengeance and deceive everyone. But we can be like Jesus. We can come with a message of hope. We can come with a message of truth that says sin must be paid for, but there is forgiveness in Christ. Let's take a moment and reflect, and I just pray that God would give us all insight to know the truth that's here. And then I will pray for us. Let's take a moment of silence. Father, we need your help. We, we live in this world filled with devils, filled with sin, and filled with pain. And we often don't know what to do. So help us to respond with the gospel. Help us to respond with truth. Lord, give us insight. This is one chapter in your word and it teaches us much, but help us to think well about what all the scripture says and how we can seek justice in this world, how we can respond to evil in a way that would honor you. Thank you for your grace, Lord, that helps us when we fail at that, for your mercy to us when we don't deserve it. Pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.